it, it sounds like altruism almost, but it was ego in the sense that he couldn't bear, he couldn't psychically accept that he lost money. And to me, if the story is true, he returned it and all that, it was still incredibly um, sort of revealing to me that he felt he had to reimburse rich people when the market turned against them briefly. And as, and as Ike Sorkin told me, his lawyer, people who were his clients figured out pretty quickly, hey, you don't lose money with this guy. My guest today is Jim Campbell. Jim is known for his hard-hitting interviews of leading figures from the world of business, politics, and sports. His latest book is Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. His book has been called the definitive in-depth account of the spectacular rise and fall of Bernie Madoff and the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time and features new exclusive, never-before-published details from Madoff himself. I recently sat down with Jim and we talked about how he got access to Madoff, what motivated him to run a Ponzi scheme, and how Madoff's victims were victimized twice. Jim, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I greatly am looking forward to our conversation since we spoke uh, about a week or so ago and since I read your amazing book. Thank you, Charles. Great honor to be here. And uh, you got a great, impressive background. And uh, talking about background, that American flag looks very nice behind you, too. Uh-huh. Thank you. Same there. I, I see a flag behind you uh, folded. I hope uh... I do that. My daughter's boyfriend that was in the uh, Air Force in Iraq. And that's a flag uh, from uh, Iraq that was raised there. Nice. Really nice. That's great, man. That's absolutely. How did you get it? He gave it to uh, he gave it to my uh, daughter to give to me. Nice man. He wanted to get in good with his uh, future father-in-law. Nice small boy, <laughs> small boy. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, Madoff talks uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. Before we get into anything, 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 for those who have been living under a rock, Madoff created, masterminded the most amazing Ponzi scheme in history close to $65 billion, all fabricated, taking money from Peter to pay Paul. That's all you have to know about a Ponzi scheme. Jim, how did you, when he was sentenced to 150 years in jail, how did you gain access to him? And after I read your book, I was, I was telling you, I got sick at certain points, and, and all a compliment to you, but it, the book really just hit me really hard in certain places. But how did you gain access to this man and get him to open up as best he could. Yeah, you know, um, I tell you, Charles, the, uh, I have to be honest, a lot of fortuitous uh, coincidences. I was taping a live show then and had a guest, Laurie Sandell, who'd written a book that Andrew Madoff and his girlfriend, Catherine Hooper, had cooperated with. And she says out of the blue, if you want for your prep, I'll hook you up with Andy. And you can talk off the record, obviously, because he had too much litigation threat to do anything on the air. We talked to him. Um, We seemed to hit it off. I started off right from the get-go bombarding him with uh, questions, accusations. I found him to be uh, pretty open. He said, you know, Jim, your show's live. I've just talked to you now. I'm going to listen tomorrow to see if you are saying the same types of things you're saying now. After we we finished the second fortuitous coincidence, his mother, Ruth Madoff, was moving from Florida to Old Greenwich, Connecticut. I happened to live in Old Greenwich. I said I would take her out. 
um, for for lunch because she's not going to know anybody and no one's going to want to associate with her anyway. And it's a December. She comes into the restaurant. There's no one else there. She's wearing sunglasses even inside until she took them off. And we hit it off. And uh, I found her to be very open. She ate a chef salad like she hadn't had any food in three weeks. And then when we walked out, um, I said, can I get a picture with you? And she stopped and said, you're wired, aren't you? And she thought I'd set her up. But once I uh, set her straight, she then introduced me to Bernie. Bernie said, based on what Andrew and Ruth have told me, I'm going to uh, talk to you and hope you can dispel some of the myths around this. And uh, first off, Andy never spoke another word to his father after he confessed. So that couldn't have been accurate or it had to come through uh, through Ruth. So um, that that's how it happened. Now I got to tell you, I've wrecked my mind on this as well as why did they trust me? Why did they put their legacy in the hand of a guy they knew nothing about? Um, none of them saw the book before it came out. And, um, you know, with Bernie, if you know his history, he didn't have any uh, custodians for his assets, which is a huge red flag. And uh, a, a Wall Street shrink told me that he probably viewed you as a custodian that he could control, just like uh, any, anybody else. Now, Andrew and Ruth and Catherine Hooper, um, I, to this day, I can't quite tell you um, why they trusted me. They didn't know me. Um, Catherine Hooper told me after she saw me on CBS uh, Sunday morning where I talked about whether the family knew or not, um, she thanked me for following the truth. And she had told me when I first interviewed her that she didn't believe Andrew knew to the depth of her soul, but if I found it, she would accept it, And um, which I thought showed a lot of character. All right, so... For whatever is the skies parted, the heavens parted, and you were graced with getting into the mind or at least communicating with this, I don't even want to use adjectives because uh, whatever I say is going to be wanting to how many lies he destroyed. But um, here you have a guy who was literally on top of the world. I mean, there was no greater guy than Bernie Madoff, and you'll tell us in a few minutes why he was such a powerhouse on Wall Street. How this guy did such evil to so many on such a scale that no one, no one ever even came close. Charles Ponzi couldn't do it, and he was the originator of a Ponzi scheme. So before we begin, before we begin, I want to start at the end. It's December, uh, a day or two, right before Christmas or so, or about, right? December It goes to, he gets arrested December 11th. Okay, so this is December 10th, December 10th. Right. So December 10th, 2008, right? Bernie Madoff calls his two sons to his apartment and he sits down with them and he's been acting weird all week or so. He's been having backaches, lying on the floor, going crazy. And what does he tell him? And he goes, I was Ruth there, his wife as well. Yeah. Um, actually, Bernie is in his office at, uh, before this. And he appears to start to have a nervous breakdown. And his secretary is watching this. And that's when the boys come running in. And um, they don't know exactly what's going on, but they know they got to get him out of there right away. They, they, uh, he puts his jacket on. They literally almost carry him out. And then they go up to the Upper East Side where uh, they had a co-op on the top floor of the building. And, um, you know, Bernie says, you know, it's all fake and all of that. 
And um, Ruth, the first thing Ruth says is, what is a Ponzi scheme? Wait, wait, so hang on, hang on, hang on, Jim. So he's sitting there with his two boys who are also in the business, but in a different section. We'll talk about that. A different floor, different type of business. He has his wife and his two sons there, and he confesses and tells them what? What does he actually tell them? Tells them none of it's true. Um, none of it. Uh, none of the uh, the investment advisory business uh, is true. Uh, that it's that it's a that it's a fraud. That it's a fake. And uh, Mark, uh, I believe, convulses almost immediately. And Andrew um, uh, rounds thing up. Both of the boys leave the apartment very soon thereafter um, to figure out what to do. And obviously, Ruth stays back. And she represented to me that the first thing she asked him was, what is a Ponzi scheme? Um, that she didn't even know what the heck he was talking about. And uh, the boys just, um, you know, go and call their lawyer who um, calls the um, uh, the uh, SBNY, the Southern District of New York, mm-hmm. uh, one of the prosecutors there. And the prosecutor thinks, he says, I have a $65 million um, financial scam. And the guy says, okay, call us first thing tomorrow morning. And his lawyer says, no, I'm talking 65 billion. And the guy chokes on it. And, um, they send the FBI, um, right up. And Bernie also says to them, that first question is, is there an explanation for this? And he says, no. And, um, okay. So at first, at first Bernie confesses and he says, look, it was all me. Excuse me. I did it all myself. Yeah. Turning myself in. And as the story progresses, we start to find out there are a lot more accomplices. It's been longer than anyone has thought that he was taking money in and paying out. And it affected not only people in the United States, but people on different continents throughout the world. I think it was close to 17,000 plus people and feeder funds and more. And it just reverberated where... Some people committed suicide after seeing all yeah. their, their fortune gone. So now I want you to take us back to this guy, Bernie, as, as you got inside his head, or maybe he got inside your head. That's how manipulative this guy was. So, and you know, and I would, if I would speak to this guy, I would think he's getting inside me. It's like uh, Silence of the Lambs with Anthony Hopkins. I would think he's really getting me. You know, he's too sharp. He got $65 billion from a lot of smart people, you know, and he was able to do this for like 30 to 40 years. So I'd be nervous. But anyway... Bernie is a guy from Queens who starts at the bottom without any connections. Tell me the story how this guy from Queens, in a sprinkler business, and I think high school or right after high school, marries an accountant's yep. daughter and become, becomes king of Wall Street. Yes. Uh, and I think it's an, sort of a, an important, perhaps, motivator under the table, though Bernie has no insight into his own psyche, if you will. But he grew up in the what I call the shadow of failure. His father had several businesses that seemed to fail, declared bankruptcy in a sporting goods business, was found to have a brokerage, if you can believe it, a broker-dealer out of his house that was shut down by the SEC, though Bernie misrepresented to me uh, what happened. But he was an ambitious guy, and he went off to Alabama, University of Alabama, and he had started dating Ruth Madoff um, in when she was 13 years old. He was 16, and he lasted a year in Alabama, 
before he was drawn back by her, went to Hofstra, and he was just set on making a name for himself on Wall Street. And, um, you know, out where he was, you know, was uh, metaphorically a long, long way from Wall Street, though it's a subway ride. And um, he was dead set on doing it. And um, he had tremendous brilliance. And he found some mentors of highly legitimate people like Gus Levy on Wall Street, um, some, uh, some, some Jewish leaders on Wall Street. Gus Levy being uh, head of Goldman Sachs. Yeah, Goldman one of the, Sachs. Right, one of the legends. Arbitrage. One of the legends on Wall Street, Gus Levy. One of the legends on Wall Street, and they in fact helped him as he as he uh, called it, feeding him scraps on uh, what were convertible securities that an arcane part of the market that he ended up doing innovation in and dominating uh, in a segment of it. But yes, he went down there and um, he built this thing from scratch with his brother. He had continual insights in holes in the market. Um, the uh, the pink sheets back then, you know, all the uh, OTC stocks that weren't on the New York Stock Exchange, they weren't transparent. There were no prices available. You actually had to call dealers on the phone and they were all separate regional exchanges. He had a vision to put all that together. His brother had the architectural uh, vision from the technical side. And damned if Bernie didn't pull this off, break the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange, end up the number three volume trader um, uh, on Wall Street, and um, and uh, you know developed a niche when it was very unpopular to even deal with the dis discount brokerage firms. Uh, he helped legitimize them. He, the the price of commissions came down. Wait, wait, Jim, 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 let me just put some color on this because you're an old Wall Street guy. You got all okay. this. Okay. okay, I'm just going to put a little color on this because I got what you're saying, but I want to just, I, you know, today you could you could trade on your phone. It's a, it's a second and instantaneous execution. Back in the day, and I remember this when I started trading back in the late 70s when I was still in high school and college a little and then became a floor trader. When you wanted to trade stocks, when you say the pink sheets, these were physical sheets that were pink. They were off the exchange in a sense that there was little volume, little disclosure about them. And the way you traded these, you called up someone who dealt in the pink sheets. They would make you a market, let's say, to buy a 10, to sell a 12. They would make that spread. Sometimes these spreads are even larger, and they'd make that $2, $5, $10 difference. Yes. And when you used to place an order with a broker, he'd say, let me get back to you. And you used to, sometimes up to a day or two. And they used to call around and get quotes and say, the best one I got is... 10 bid at $13. What do you want to do? Buy at 13 and sell at 10 or that's it. That was it. And let me just add one more thing and then I'll let you go, is commissions. There was no negotiating commissions. This was before May Day of 1975 where commissions were fixed. Uh, so you, there was nothing discount broker. So when you bought a stock, you had to figure that you had to make X percent just to overcome the commissions and the bid spread, the bid offer, so it was a yep. lot, lot harder. Well, let me put it this way: it was more of a longer-term play. Now, Bernie sees this as being archaic. It's like we're doing email today, and they're still using teletype, or they're still using the fax machine. He comes up with this new way to do what? Basically, I, I just said like put put a. a the glow the U.S. exchange on a screen, on a cyberspace, by uniting the uh, the various disparate exchanges, right? And then, of course, you've got up-to-minute pricing. 
and all of those kinds of things. And you're right, with, with fixed commissions, he was putting a lot of money in his pocket, which led to payment for order flow, which we could discuss separately because that's a big issue um, uh, right now. But the fact is, he it was legitimate and he was finding niches in the market. On the, on the, on the convertible side, he actually, at that time, you talked about what, what, uh, how archaic it was, convertibles, conversions were taking sometimes three weeks. And he actually built a back office to get rid of that whole time spread. Very unusual for a small, tiny brokerage firm to build a back office like that. And he ended up getting, getting into that field. Um, as well. That was actually his first niche before the right. split strike conversion. Jim, Jim, let me interrupt one second. Now, it's very important to, to appreciate this, folks, is back in the day, this was to the major brokerage houses advantage not to have this so automated because then they could use, they could quote you prices. You had no price discovery. Uh, it's like a, a comic book store or a baseball card store back in the 1970s. If they walked in and they said this card was $5, you ought to pay $5. Today, you go on the internet, you see it's 14 cents. But there was no price discovery back then. The prices were traded. Sometimes these stocks were traded by appointment. Convertible securities, as you mentioned, were a more complicated issue, which they made a huge, huge margin. Wall Street was a, was a money-making machine. And in comes this guy from Far Rockaway, him and his brother, without the pedigree, without knowing many people, bursting on the scene and saying, we see inefficiencies in the way the market is displaying this information. We're going to revamp it and squeeze money for the investor. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll say you talk about um, um, no, in, no interest in, um, in innovation. The specialist uh, especially had no interest in innovation because they're watching their job go bye-bye uh, because right. it's pretty obvious that well, all this stuff can be made electronic, can't it? And um, so, yeah, he was, Bernie was viewed as a, as a big threat. Um, in fact, uh, the head of the stock exchange tried to basically bribe him by offering a great specialist book if he'd come inside. Right. So, so Bernie creates, and we're talking not talking about the illegitimate Ponzi scheme. We're talking about right. the two faces of Bernie, as you say perfectly in the book. I really love the analogy in the book, the front of the restaurant. He creates the front of the restaurant. Use a mafia uh, um, example that in a, they have a restaurant, the front of the restaurant, it looks totally legit. It's down in the basement and behind in the freezer where the bad stuff takes place. But the front of the restaurant was really front of the restaurant. He made he. It was a five-star, you know, Michelin-type yeah. restaurant. It was top class. It was a moneymaker for as far back as we know, about 2,000 or so. We'll get into that in a minute. And at one time, this innovation part where his sons worked on a different floor in the Lipstick Building. Lipstick Building, the address is, where is that exactly? It's around 50th on the east side, somewhere right. in there. Lipstick building. It's called a lipstick building because it looks like a case of lipstick. It looks like a tube of lipstick, right. yeah. Uh, right, so the lipstick building. And he has, there are two floors there. And one floor, it's, yeah, right, it's a 3rd Avenue, 885 3rd Avenue. So it's on East 53rd. If you live in New York or just Google it on the internet, you'll see exactly what it looks like that. So there are two floors. There's the 17th, right, and the 19th, yep. right? Yep. Okay. The castle with the moat around it is the 17th floor. That's where all the shenanigans take place. Yes. No one has access to that. Now, we're not talking about that yet. 
The 19th floor where he puts his two sons, this is a thriving business where Bernie's getting volume, trading volume yeah. from the Schwabs yeah. and the Fidelities. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, he first off, it looked like a Hollywood set. He was OCD to the hill. So that all the screens had to be the same tilt. Everything had to be black and white. No papers on your desk at the end of the day. And he was adamant that there was to be no regulatory screwing around. He didn't like even slaps on the wrist. Uh, up there. It was all had to be by the book. And of course, Wall Street thought he was front running all the time, which is jumping ahead of customers' orders, right? Because you know that how that's going to move the market. And that's how they thought he was getting teeny weeny spreads that, that never resulted in losses because he had insight. No, no, no. Hang on, hang on, Jim. Don't jump. Don't jump. We're talking about the legitimate side of the business. We don't know. We don't know the back of the restaurant yet. So the front of the yeah, restaurant is a Hollywood set regulatory spick and span triple a you they can write textbooks on how to run a market making operation from from bernie madoff what was it bm uh blmis blmis his initials bernie l madoff uh investments 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 security so that part of the business is totally legit it's Capturing, I don't know. You said how much of the volume of uh, of the stock market? He ended up getting a ten percent of the of the uh, share of the volume, which is third. And by the way, he was had top caliber um, uh, technology. Yes, there he was ahead of the street in technology. He had real time P and Ls, which didn't even exist right. uh, when he did it, and uh, which obviously allowed him to do great risk uh, risk management. He automated traders from 100 down to 10, 15. So he was ahead of the curve uh, all the time in that business. So he not only created a phenomenal business, but from the perspective of the investor, they were getting best execution. Because back in the day, your execution, yep. if you were buying or selling something, might not be the best because the brokerage firm could move the market, open up the spreads, a whole bunch of Wall Street tricks where they make a huge amount of money by taking zero risk. Bernie closed that gap tremendously and made it more of a democratized trading. Fair? Yes. Uh, not only did he do best execution, they used to brag about it. He did price improvement, which is <laughs> right. better than the publicly listed prices on the screens. He was beating that while he was paying for order flow. Right, which is absolutely amazing. Amazing. So yes. you just heard, if you closed your podcast right now, you just heard... Bernie Madoff, the Messiah of Wall Street, the Messiah of the of the of the average investor, because he was doing stuff that created a level playing field. He became uh, president or chairman of the Nasdaq. Was it president or Chair, chairman of the chairman. Nasdaq? The SEC used to contact him when they couldn't understand <laughs> shenanigans at one of the major firms, and Bernie would explain what what it, what it meant. Right, right. So he knew where the bodies are buried. He knew how it was almost like Joseph P. Kennedy in charge of the SEC. Back yeah. when Roosevelt put him there, put the as Roosevelt said, put the fox in charge of the uh, of the hens. He knows all and the us. tricks. So Bernie and I and I just want to impress upon our listeners that this guy, you know, he said, how do people get caught up, caught into this? It's like I, I can't even give an example because it just boggles the mind. Here is a guy who is who is as straight as straight can be is making a huge amounts of money in a profitable area for the average investor, beating Wall Street at their own game, and one out of every 10 trades go through his firm. So it's not like you didn't know Bernie Madoff. If you didn't know Bernie Madoff, you shouldn't have been on Wall Street. 
it's like going into any business and saying, you know, I don't know who the I don't know who Jeff Bezos is of Amazon. Yep. It, it, or, or who the hell's Bill Gates? No, everyone knew this guy. He was about as 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 top shelf. You couldn't get any more top shelf. He was chairman of Nasdaq for crying out loud. Okay, now he's running this business. As you said, OCD guy, it's spick and span, no papers, nothing on the desk, everything looks great. And I think when regulators used to come in, they used to leave behind uh, their resumes so Bernie could hire them. Did you, you know that, right? Yes, and as I said, the FINRA actually put their freshman uh, orientation classes over at his place. And uh, because they thought it looked like a Hollywood set and that was what, you know, so they would send them over there. Yeah, and then a, they'd put those guys on his audits too. Make right, sure they guys, and, and then and then these guys would want to come and work for Bernie. It was just absolutely yeah. amazing. So if we don't understand, I, I really think it's so important. I think you did a fantastic job in your book, and you spent a lot of a lot of real estate in the book, explaining to the average reader how Wall Street works, how this guy revolutionized. And I'm not using that word lightly. Revolutionized the street. Uh, there was no reason. You'd leave, you want this guy, uh, you know, you, you, you want him as a son-in-law. <laughs> you know, you want him as a family member. Having, it, having Bernie was having royalty. Yeah, and he was everybody's Jewish grandfather. He wasn't Gordon Gecko at all. He was, uh, you know, low-key uh, kind of guy. And he just, you know, he, he, built, he built, he was a great con man because he wasn't a con man. He wasn't trying to con right, anybody. Right, right, right. Okay, let's get into the psychological thing in just a second. Because the more okay. I think about Bernie and the more... I've read uh, about him throughout the years and seen the two movies and read your book, which I think is outstanding because there are so many lessons in it, which I want to talk about when we get to that at the end. But if you don't appreciate what kind of guy he was, you really can't fully comprehend how bad a deed he did. Agreed? I, not only would I agree, but that business at <clears throat> peak was worth $3 billion in and of itself. Right, right. So he had a business that he created from scratch with no contact. $5,000. No $5,000, right. Okay. Now, that's the, that's the Bernie that he wanted the world to see. Whereas you use in your book, which I think is a great analogy, the front of the restaurant. Everything, it couldn't be better. Perfect, Jim. Now we go to the crap, how they make the sausages. He had his second business, which was called? Investment advisory business. Investment advisory, where he took people's money and said, I'm going to invest it for you. Forget about what he invested in, but basically investment advice, I'm going to take your money, I'm going to manage your money, and get you a real nice, consistent return that doesn't fluctuate much. Perfect if you're retired. You live off that money. Great, Uncle Bernie's taking care of you. Now, he takes this money, and he becomes, he becomes, I, I don't know what the psychological term is, but as he starts taking this money, he can't deal with losses, right? That's one of the yeah. reasons. So he, he loses money in the beginning, which we don't know where the beginning is. But where did you see the beginning of the Ponzi scheme start to develop where Bernie couldn't deal? Because it wasn't the money. It was, right? I, I, I got that sense from the yeah. book. It wasn't the money which was driving him. It was something much bigger than that. It was not the money that was driving him. And remember, too, he obviously loves this public posture of the success 
of the uh, market making business. But for some reason, he doesn't want anybody to know that he's in the investment advisory business. He was telling everybody and his feeder funds, you tell them I'm executing trades. I don't have any discretion on the investment strategy because that was what he was doing upstairs, executing, um, executing trades. So he was not looking for any kind of profile. And as you said, 1962, he had 12 family members and then 12 more non-family for 24 clients. He put them into an IPO and the that's supposed to be stabilized by the underwriters they ran to the shores. And he totally panicked and put thir- borrowed 30000 from Rue's father and paid them all back. Which can nobody on Wall no firm pays somebody. Okay, so, for so let, me, let me let me put that in everyday English. He yeah. invested people's money in it. Twenty four fam- people, twelve family members, twelve non but close yeah. friends who entrusted him with money. He took the money, bought into an IPO where the sponsors of this were shady. Walked away. The stock plummets to zero. And Bernie feeling so terrible that he lost people's money, even though they knew it was a big risk, even though they knew it was a yeah. lottery ticket. And he, they had the money anyway. It was only 30000 Right. He went and got the money from his father-in-law, who was an accountant, and paid everyone yes. back. Which, first of all, by the SEC rules, you're not allowed to do that. It's illegal to reimburse clients for losses. But Bernie did it at a sense of what? Why did he do that? He And again, it, it sounds like altruism almost, but it was ego in the sense that he couldn't bear. He couldn't psychically accept that he lost money. And to me, if the story is true, he returned it and all that, it was still incredibly um, sort of revealing to me that he felt he had to reimburse rich people when the market turned against them briefly. And as, and as Ike Sorkin told me, his lawyer, people who were his clients figured out pretty quickly, hey, you don't lose money with this guy. Right, right, right. So, okay, so the legend builds. And now once he gets a taste of that, uh, that he can make, what was it, the sense, Jim, of walking into a room and being godlike in the sense that it was an ego thing where I never lose? That, you know, it had, is that more or less it? He, he, the way he saw it was, I'm a people pleaser, Jim, and I have to be the go-to guy, and I have to deliver whatever's asked. I used to think it was absurd, Charles, when he'd have these cash crises, right, and almost get caught. But at the same time, offer his sons $2 million loans because they needed it to buy co-ops or whatever. And he wasn't going to be able to, he wasn't going to say, no, I don't have any money right now, or I can't do it, or it doesn't make sense. And he'd be scrambling for money while he was giving his his, his kids right. uh, money. It's just, it just, it was all in his, he wasn't in his psyche to be able to say, I made a mistake, or I need help, or no, I'm not going to give you that return. Right, which is, which is, you know, it's not normal. That bottom line, uh, investing is there's always the possibility of loss. Everyone who invests know it's that. It's crazy on Wall Street. You know, James Simon of Renaissance is the best uh, hedge Quant, fund manager yeah. in history, 39% average returns after fees. He only makes money on 51% of his trades. Right, right. And he experienced, I think, a down year last year, or pretty, uh, one of his funds, I'm not sure, no, the, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, you're right. He has a, yeah, he has a big fund that, yeah. The, but the, his core fund, though, is right, 39%. Is it, but the guys who and made, by the way, he had money with Madoff for yeah, a while. Yeah, when he took it out, which was amazing. Took so, it out. Yeah, but it goes to show even smart guys who know the business got sucked into this. So now Bernie has this compulsion, not only in terms of OCD stuff, not in terms of just building a business on the outside, but he can't say no. 
He can't, he can't face the fact that he's mortal and can lose money. Yep. So now he starts getting whom into this fund? Because in the beginning days, it wasn't feeder funds. It wasn't hedge funds. It was whom? Who was he getting into the fund well, at the time? You know, initially, um, and this sort of gave him the model to how to build it. Saul Alpern, who's the father-in-law who gave him the money, when he retired, the uh, firm, the accounting firm became Abilene and Vietas, A and B. And those were, his, that was essentially his first feeder fund. They were funneling money over. The clients did not know where it was going. Um, they, they, they were not allowed to reveal who the, the money manager was. And the money manager insisted, which was Bernie, that they put in there that he was only executing trades. And that's when it began. And the money was coming in. And the A and B folks had structured it as borrowing from their clients and then paying them interest. So what was happening was they were offering their clients 9% and Bernie was guaranteeing them 11%. The numbers were actually higher, but just as an example. So they pocketed 2%, they gave the clients 7%. And that, that's how it all started until the SEC came in and said, no, that ain't, that ain't kosher. And then, and then I went from there. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. Okay, there's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Wall Street talking heads with no chance of helping you make big money in stocks. Why? Because they can't. According to Standard & Poor's, 92% of active fund managers underperform their benchmark. 92%. 92%. And you know who suffers for it? Millions of Main Street Americans just like you. That's why Charles Mizrahi is on a mission. A mission to help 1 million Americans take back their financial future in a way that's easy to use and profitable. And with nearly 100,000 people already on their way, you could be next. So don't listen to the turkeys. Instead, listen to how America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, could help you make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. To see how, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. So these people were feeding Bernie money. They weren't asking too many questions as to how this guy was giving a guaranteed rate. Uh, they didn't care. Uh, or they closed the, put a blind eye to it. Whatever it was, they were making money. This guy had all the creds as his career yep. starts to take off. And how could you not trust him, right? Okay. So like any Ponzi scheme, it goes after the people of their own. So Bernie is in touch with the Jewish working man and woman, right? Those are his original suckers or, or, or uh, uh, I, you know, I, I can't say, you know, I don't know what they're called, but uh, victims, really, it's the best term, his, his victims, right? So he goes yeah. after them and word spreads that you have to be asked by Bernie to be in this fund. Yeah. Not, you can't, he doesn't solicit and you can't ask him to be in the fund. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And after the A and B, the SEC insisted um, that the a, the structure A and B had was not, uh, was not legal and that Bernie had to return all the money to them, right? What happened was th these guys didn't want their money back because they were making so much. So the individual sent it back and that's how it started. They figured out, Bernie and his right-hand man figured out how to scale that up. And suddenly they went from 300 to like 3,000 um, clients. And by the way, when you said that you couldn't get into it, Bernie, there were 14 banks in Europe 
who all thought they were the exclusive to Bernie. I, we can get you. We're the only guys here in Europe. And there were 14 of them, you know, and that's and it was always like I, Bernie's shut right now, but I can get you in kind of deal. And he did. He sat back and just counted money. He didn't ask people for money. So so what he did was is he used the most, you know, basic kind of uh, uh, um, instinct that people have is exclusivity and scarcity. And yep. he just played on the exclusivity and scarcity and if Bernie wanted in, you couldn't ask questions. If you ask questions, you piss them off. And even if you recommended someone to him that he didn't approve, he would yell at you for how could you spread my name around? You're out of the fund. Always threaten people with being out of the fund. Yep, and he would not. And he would not. He, he would not take them in. His sons, who were seen by the public as running the market making business often couldn't get people into his fund because Bernie was turning them down because he knew they were going to be crash dummies. But the boys didn't know that. And it was totally hurtful to them yeah. that they didn't even have the power with their dad to get guys into his fund. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's like your dad being able to get you, uh, everyone else, courtside seats at the Nick game. And you have to sit in the bleachers and you can't even get anybody courtside seats. What a bad father. But Bernie's way of protecting. But by the way, just, 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 just let's stop here. There's nothing, there's no mercy, there's no apology, there's anything for Bernie here. We're just explaining what went on and the mindset of people. So I just don't want anyone to think yeah. that Jim Campbell wrote a book trying to explain in the sense of having sympathy for Bernie. In fact, you read the book, and as I mentioned, I read it right before I went to sleep each night, and some parts were really sickening because it was so sad what happened to some of these victims who... At 70, 80 years old, lost everything and then had to go live with their children and some committed suicide and, and how many people had mental health issues and, 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 and physical sickness that nobody counted. But there were a couple of suicides attributed to Bernie losing money, uh, stealing money. So now. Including his son. Including, yeah, he lost everything. Look, you know, it, it, it's, it's poetic justice, right? His two sons, one son dies slowly from cancer. The other one hangs himself and his wife's living in a small apartment now living out her days and nobody talking to us. So he destroyed every, he destroyed his house. He destroyed his house. So Bernie goes ahead and his fame starts spreading because he's not promising 50% returns or 60% return. What's he promising, Jim? Yeah, you know, you're right. That's another thing is he kept himself under the radar and towards the end, it was 11%. I, I talked to victims who whose accountants and advisors were saying, why is your money in here? You can do much better than this. So you're right. Now, in the beginning years, when there was higher inflation, and he was paying his big four, for instance, his co-conspirators, 30, 40, 50%. So he was giving returns that looked uh, excessive. And that was coming out of the lower returns that the uh, uh, that his core group was getting. Right. Now, let, let, let's, let's be totally clear. These aren't really returns. Bernie will tell you that they were legit at some point, but from your discovery, and I want to tell you, when I read the book, I, I don't even start with how many, how many mountains of, of cartons you had to go through of data uh, to actually piece some of this stuff together to refute what Bernie was saying or to prove what he was saying. In many cases, you, you, it was a bold-faced liar. It just, it just yeah. it was, it's not there. So yeah. how... When he was taking this money and producing these type of quote-unquote returns, was any of it, from what you've uncovered forensically, any of it ever real? Any of it? No. 
I don't believe that it was ever real. Uh, I think he was always short money. I think he was always, and as you say, a Ponzi scheme means there's no real investment activity going on. And I don't think there was any real investment activity. I think he faked it all along once he saw that he couldn't tolerate any uh, any kind of losses. And um, the forensics all, all support that. As you know, he was trading more options that existed in the market. The prices didn't match the days and on and on. Okay, so now he does this through the 60s. He, he told you, no, I only did this through what I started in 92 or so. Yeah, 19, 1992. 92. Okay. So that's, that's a lie because Bernie was doing this way back. You caught him in 13 different lies. And that's a problem yeah. with a liar. They just can't remember all of their misstatements. Uh, that's my, my, uh, my mother used to say, when you tell the truth, you never have to remember anything, right? So it's when you lie, you got to piece all this stuff together. So Bernie was from the 60s, 70s, 80s and 92 by his own admission, able to continue this game, and it started to mushroom it, to the point where he's, at, at, by, night, by, by 2000, how much money is he supposedly managing? Um, he's, it scales up. Remember, I said the A and B 1992. That's, that was the first feeder fund. And then all of a sudden, the feeder funds uh, avalanched him. And um, $65 billion was the final number. And in, I, I don't know exactly what it was. I know, I know that um, he was at 15 and 16 billion at a time when that would have been the biggest hedge fund uh, in the world, likely, which would have been right after the 92, 95 timeframe. Um, and then it just exponentially, uh, exponentially grew. And I mean, he was growing, remember, he was having positive 1% returns a month. Right. Think about right, that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, look, I manage money from 86 on. And, uh, you know, when uh, back in the day when uh, I do remember running in to a few clients throughout my career that told me, even though your returns have been beating the S&P, I'm not going to give you money because I have a guy. It wasn't Bernie at the time. It was it was some other guy who was in real estate who's guaranteeing me 10 percent. Or I have something else where I'm yeah. getting 8%. I kept saying, look, God has not created an instrument where it's no risk, 7 to 8 percentage points above a treasury bill, consistent, yeah. it just doesn't exist. It, I don't know it does for me, but they all blow up eventually. But put that aside. So people were willing to suspend any type of reality, put themselves in type of a, of a chamber of, of, of ignorance, and saying, oh, he must be doing X. Meanwhile, it was virtually impossible, right? Yeah, I break it into like a couple of segments, right? There's the big four and those kind of guys, and they know that there's fraud going okay, Jim, on. Jim, they don't Jim, know talk, 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 talk about who the big four are. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the big four were his old line, big investors who bailed him out uh, repeatedly over the years or helped provide cash to get him through or collateral that they could use for loans. And these guys came to have the power to extort him. And the biggest was Jeffrey Pickhauer, who I mentioned, who took $7 billion out nine times what Bernie uh, put into the, uh, into the fund. Those guys I call, um, you know, co-conspirators. Then there's the willfully blind, which is the hedge fund guys. They know that something's not, uh, not right, and they don't know what it is either. And then there's a third group that falls into, we totally trust Bernie. We don't know what he's doing, but we know that he's an honest, good guy. The willfully blind are, we don't know what Bernie's doing, but he's our guy. 
and we think maybe it's front running, um, but we're not going to look and we're not going to ask. So that there were different types, you know, from guys that knew it was fraud to people that didn't look to people that were totally suckered. Right. Okay. So now these big four, they were stealing as well because they were telling oh, yeah. what numbers they needed to make and they were charging or making us charging. They were making the spread between what they promised and what they asked Bernie. So they offered to their clients 10% and Bernie was paying them, let's say 15% and they would take the 5% for themselves. Is that right? Well, the, of the four, one of them, Stanley Chase was doing that. He had his own fund, yes. but these four were really only investing for themselves and they were calling in literally and Pickhower literally called it and said, this is the gain I want. And they'd go calculate it. And then he'd call back and say, this is the loss I want. And they'd go. Wait, this, is, go this, is, this was only for themselves? Other than, I thought they were this is only only for themselves. Stanley Chase wow. also allowed to have a hedge fund where Bernie did the same thing with all the other guys. Chase had no idea what his strategy was and said, don't even try to explain it to me. All I want is no losses. Wow. I, you know, I didn't know those other three guys uh, were doing it for their own money. That's insane. That's absolutely yeah, yeah. insane. I mean, uh, Pickhower put in at most $200 million of his own money and, and got what, out nine, uh, $7 billion. $7 billion. Well, that's a great investment, right? So, okay. So, uh, fast forward throughout the years. He's calling it some split option uh, um, strategy, which yeah. – if you could explain it, which I don't want you to do at any point because the book has it in there. I'll explain it to people very simply. If Bernie said, did what he said he did, there were not enough options in circulation to accomplish what he said. And I was mentioning to you, uh, Jim uh, Ponzi, I read a book on Charles Ponzi. He did the same thing with postal stamps back in the day. Yeah. With the original. There weren't enough postal stamps in creation to do what Ponzi was saying. So Bernie followed the same thing, but people turned a blind eye to what was going on by trying to rationalize it, that he's doing it off, you know, doing it a, a private market or he's doing it uh, off, um, yes. you know, yes. uh, or with, uh, what do you call it, with, um, what did they say? Um, uh, it, was, it was private market, but no, not private market. What's the term? When off, was, the ex off the exchange. Off exchange, yeah. off exchange, yeah. right. So they're doing off exchange. So they were willing to, to close their eyes because Life was good. Now, uh, I do remember in 2000, I think it was, where there was an article in Barron's yeah. about, and uh, we used to get MAR at the time, uh, Managed Account Report. Yes. Uh, right. Yeah. So, and I remember they looked that up and they used to write on every hedge fund and Bernie, which, which amazingly, wasn't even a hedge fund. He wasn't even, he flew under the radar, right? He wasn't even registered. Wasn't registered. And now the SEC is tipped off to this uh, Barron's writes a whole article that the returns are too good to be true. And I think there are 20 or 30 points in that article or something, or, uh, or am I mixing up uh, Marco Polo's? No, that, no that, they, you're right. Aaron Arvid wrote the Barron's article, and you're right that, that it, was, it was too good to be true and only positive returns. The 30 uh, red flags is Harry Markopoulos, okay, whistleblower. Okay, so a whistleblower comes and looks at him, and people, by the way, folks, I just want you to realize if you're in the money management business, you are losing money in terms of assets coming into your house instead of Bernie's house. You are losing money because you can't beat Bernie's returns. Why would That's someone right. risk 15% type of returns with you, which you might get or might not get because you're honest and markets go up and down when Bernie's guaranteeing you X? 
So people losing yeah. on. So what people did, like Harry Markopoulos, uh, and uh, where they they tried to what recreate this. Yeah, he re, he he tried to re-engineer it. And by the way, it only took him about two hours to figure out uh, that the returns couldn't be true, and that and that what he was doing um, couldn't uh, a his own strategy couldn't deliver what he said, and b uh, it it couldn't have worked anyway because obviously there were no losses. Or whatever it took him only two hours. The, I actually have a screenshot of the spreadsheet in the book. Right. So now, the other co-conspirators here have to be, as you point out, government regulators. Because the SEC knew about this, the Boston office knew about this, and because of the politics between New York and Boston, yep. a whole bunch of other crap that goes on, Bernie still gets to wiggle out for another eight more years and take in billions of dollars more and destroy more people. Yes, and also he brilliantly exploited the SEC silos. And what do I mean by that? He didn't register as an investment advisor. Investment advisory examination teams are separate than broker-dealer. So the bad stuff was in the 17th floor, needed an investment advisory team. They never came because they didn't think he had one. And the broker-dealer guys were clueless how to uncover a Ponzi scheme. And it was a brilliant exploitation. Harry will tell you, in his mind, the most brilliant thing was he didn't let anybody in the firm talk to them, to the uh, examiners, but himself. He locked them in a room, and he was the only interface. He fed them what he wanted. He gave them fake reports. And if you look at the silos and the fake and controlling the dialogue, he just ran circles around the SEC. And, and Ed, one more point in there, which uh, is, is understood, is his celebrity, who he was as a person, uh, you would... You, you couldn't, if you brought up a claim against Bernie Madoff and you were a junior examiner, your career's over. Not only that, he intimidated the hell out of these. They, they were, most of these examiners and were really young guys out of law school, didn't understand the market to begin with. And he would intimidate them um, right to their face. And, and, and they, you know, they'd be shaky sometimes and they wouldn't, they wouldn't ask the questions. And if they did try and ask the, their management, the SEC said, no, you can't go out and do that. You're going to piss people off. Okay, so now it's on the front page of Barron's. Harry Markopoulos tells the SEC, Word gets around Wall Street pretty quickly, yep. and it still goes on. Why? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's a good question. Uh, first off, the SEC repudiated Markopoulos. They they thought from the they thought at first he he was running a, a hedge fund that competed with Bernie's. So they said this is sour grapes, just like you said. You can't compete against him. The second thing was they didn't understand a word he was saying, especially back then. Harry was not able to dumb himself down to explain it. And the guy, they had no clue what he was talking about. And I mean, literally. And, and part of it was Harry's fault, which he admits now. He's very humble about it. And, um, and, and so then they send these guys in, right? And they keep examining the same thing, even after they cleared him. That's how I got away with it. They kept looking for front running. Okay. okay. And Obviously, there was no front running because Bernie wasn't trading through his own market maker. Hell, he wasn't even trading right, for right, real. Right. right. They, were looking, they were looking for something that would happen yeah. in a real world and real, real trading. And he never did it. Therefore, they never find it. And he, he loved it. He, they were chasing the wrong rabbit all the time. You know, He'd come and go ahead. Go look at that business. It's, you can trace every trade there. It's totally legitimate. Okay. And by the way, as I always say, the SEC 
he and he gave them the account number at the depository trust, which is the clearing and settlement entity, and all 500,000 trades a year of the market making could be matched, right? He gave them that number and say, just ask for my sub account in investment advisory and you'll see everything is traceable. And he told me, Jim, I gave him that on a Friday night. I expected to be in handcuffs by Sunday. The SEC never made the phone call, never asked, because there was never a sub account for the investment advisory business. Forget trades. There was never even account there. All they had to do was make one phone call, right? One phone call. Okay. So now forget about the regulators for a minute. What about the okay. rest of Wall Street? What about the guys who should have known better? The uh, JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs, those companies, they, they kind of knew what was going on, but closed their eyes to it or were they totally blind? Uh, again, yeah, I would divide it up. The JP Morgan was his bank. That meant that he, they were the only entity that could actually look into his finances, right? The hedge fund guys didn't have any access, and they could have looked into his account, which, by the way, Bernie told me never had more than $5.9 in it, ever. Um, and all J.P. Morgan would have had to do is to say, okay, this is an equity fund. We're going to find counterparties in here, and we're going to find dividends, okay, when you, when you, when you had of record. And because you can't trade without counterparties. Okay, so that would have also been a five minute look. There was never a payment to a counterparty ever. There should have been four billion dollars of dividends over those years, and there wasn't one dollar of dividends. So, so J.P. Morgan is a different uh, animal. They had no excuse really. Now, take Goldman Sachs you mentioned, and Merrill and Merrill Lynch. Both of those firms, for at, at reached a point where they forbade their uh, employees from doing business with Bernie. So they knew something was up. And they didn't report him. So that, that to me is not good. And then, of course, you've got the feeder funds all over Wall Street who did no due diligence, right? And in some cases, weren't even telling their clients their money was with Bernie. They didn't find out until after they'd lost it. Right. So you have the complicity of Wall Street. And, you know, your figure is an average, you know, forget about the, the, uh, the feeder funds, uh, you know, because the feeder funds are at least putting on a masquerade. We have a due diligence. They have a nice office. And they don't tell you that they're yeah. investing with Bernie. So it's a shock. You have no idea. Whatever. You're not asking. You trust their due diligence. They have a whole team of PhDs and smart people doing yeah. it fine. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, okay. So now the average person who is getting in because a friend of a friend lets you into this right. fund, you're saying, my gosh, if it's there's really smoke here and the article in Barron's and the talk and maybe I heard, come on, all these people, you're telling me that all these people on Wall Street are being duped? Impossible. The guy's been doing it for 40-something years. So you're kind of lulled into a, to a sense of, of, of complacency. And at the end of the day, the government just drops the ball tremendously here. So you have a confluence of events where, you know, you look at how did anyone invest with them? How could you not invest with them? Yeah. I mean, it, it looked like it was a no-lose deal. And you're right. The, if you think about it, the SEC actually gave him five seals of government approval. You know, you're you're an average investor. The SEC's invested this guy, investigated him and, clear, and cleared him. What should I have to worry about? Right. And they had allegations. They, they, they went and investigated and they found, well, let me clarify, you don't really get, folks, a seal of approval from the SEC. It's yes. an implied sense of, look, if they went in and they- That's what he, that's how he, he marketed which is, by He the turned way, around and said that. Which is illegal to do. It's one of the things you can't do this. So you can never say, I was examined by the SEC and therefore uh, they gave me the seal of approval. No, you didn't get anything marked against you, but that is nothing. So 
So really, really, when you look at this whole package, you could understand how people were sucked in in a huge way for such a long period of time. Okay, now, the blank hits the fan December 2008. It makes front page news throughout the world. Millions, I I wouldn't say millions, but uh, tens of thousands of people are involved. Uh, Continents, almost every continent, I don't know if there was anyone on Antarctica getting, but there probably would have been a feat of fun if the weather was good. So you had, it, it just shook everything. And those who thought they knew said, look, I knew, but didn't say. Those who should have known said it caught it as blindsided like the SEC. And those who were wiped out, these tens of thousands of teachers, retired people. And folks, these are people who their husband or wife died and on a friend's advice gave the money to Bernie. And Bernie looked you in the eye and shook your hand and said, don't worry, I'll take care of you. That's exactly what he did. I mean, the, the woman from Chappaqua, whose um, uh, statement is the one that I show a uh, show off to people when I do presentations. Uh, B- Bernie said, you know, you have never met me. And if you're uncomfortable, I'm going to give you your money back right here in my office. And um, she says, no, no, no. He puts his arms around her and he says, you no longer have to worry about anything. Yeah, You know, Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor yes. who went throughout the world, I remember an interview with him. He lost seven or eight million dollars of Ellie Wiesel's money. This is money given to Wiesel or Wiesel set up as a foundation for Holocaust remembrance, right? And Bernie takes that money, knowing it's a Ponzi. It's just absolutely, it's, 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 I'm saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be even laughing. It's just so preposterous what kind of evil this man was. Takes that money, loses it all. And Ellie Wiesel, who is trying to always find good in humanity after going through the Holocaust and Auschwitz, says he is evil. He personifies evil to take that kind of money. And Bernie wipes these people out. Now, the second time they get victimized, as you put in the book, so heart-wrenchingly, and and what shook me, I have to say really shook me, was the perceived government and federal protection of your money. I want you to talk about that. Yeah, you know, that is, and I'm glad you asked that, because that's, to me, the unheralded scandal um, that really hasn't got a lot of exposure. SIPC uh, is the Securities Investor Protection Corp. They are the equivalent of the FDIC, although the um, FINRA and, and, and SIPC try to deny that they're exactly the same. The only difference is that they say they don't, um, they don't make up recoveries for market losses, which is obvious. But in any event, um, the FDIC was formed at the New Deal and they have honored and not have paid off every single legitimate claim and hasn't cost the government $1 because the banks pay risk-based premium. SIPC comes in, they were warned 16 years before by the GAO that you are inadequately capitalized and unprepared for a major uh, Wall Street broker-dealer failure, 16 years before. Who is the TAO? Who is the TAO? Explain who that is. The Government Accounting Office, they do the independent uh, investigations for Congress. Uh, so they have been, they they've been they put SIPC on notice essentially at least through Congress. So we get it. We got to go up to Bernie's um, uh, you know Ponzi scheme collapse. The premiums that the firms are paying then, and I'm talking about whether you're Goldman Sachs or a one man guy clearing through Bear Stearns, is $150 a year. Merrill Lynch and Goldman are paying $150 a year into the protection fund of SIPC, and. There was a total of a billion six in SIPC. Their losses on, on their statements were 65 billion. 
So what does the, what does CIPIC do? And you're an investor. It says on every statement, the marketing stuff, that, the, that they will come in if you're a victim of fraud, right? Well, they say, we don't recognize Ponzi schemes. We don't recognize um, final statements of Ponzi schemes. So imagine this. They're, they're, the message is your Maryland statement at the end of the month might not be real money. It might not be recognized, um, which to me is just totally absurd. So how did they get $14 billion back? out of the 18 billion that was the original investment. Well, 10 of it came from Bernie's big four and Bernie put the pressure on, um, on uh, Pickhauer in particular to get 7 billion back. The rest came, believe it or not, from a subset of Madoff victims who had money clawed back that went to another subset of Madoff okay. victims. Jim, let me, let me sidestep let me, any responsibility. Let me, stop, let me stop here and let me put this back into English. Because it's, okay. it's, 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 it's amazing. It's amazing when I read in your book. I couldn't believe what I was reading. SIPC was like the FTIC, folks. Your bank fails, they pay X amount of dollars for the money on deposits. Right. Okay. SIPC is the same thing for brokerage firms, for fraud. So this way, it makes you feel comfortable putting your money with Schwab or TD or whatever it might be if, there's, if it disappears. Uh, now, Jim was mentioning that the SIPC the premiums, because the banks pay premiums to the FDIC to create this fund, SIPIC, the premiums are paid by the investment banks, the investment houses, and they paid $150, not a percentage of assets, not a percentage of client segregated funds, but $150. Different story, different conversation, let's move on. SIPIC fails to pay these people back a penny. What do they do? A trustee is assigned to it, uh, whose name is um, Irving, uh, Irving Picard. Irving, Irving Picard. That's a tragedy in and of itself. And what happens here is Bernie actually helps SIPIC, because SIPIC doesn't want to pay out of their own funds because they don't have enough money. He goes and rats on Pickhauer and these other guys who are making so much money who give back into that. So you mentioned, Jim, $15 billion. $10 billion comes from really discovery on Bernie's behalf of the $7 million. And then another $3 million is Picard goes out there, Irving Picard from the SE, and claws back, which means goes back to the victims of Bernie's Ponzi scheme and says, you took out money in 2002. Those profits weren't really profits. Meanwhile, you took out $100,000, you now put it in your house or whatever, you, or you bought yourself a boat. We want that money back today. And yeah, not, they, not they, only do we want that money back today, but you might not even have that money anymore, right? You could have spent it. And what it was was these are made-off victims that took out more than they put in, and they were the ones that were susceptible. If I had left my money in and hadn't taken it out, I'm eligible to get money from the made-off guys that took the money out. And that's how they sidestepped Sipic itself having to pay for it. And Picard, by the way, has earned $2 billion, his, his law firm, in fees and expenses out of that $14 billion, okay? Uh, that's a pretty good uh, spread on Wall Street in and yeah, of itself. And he was going out banging old 14 people. 14% spread. Banging old people in the head, threatening them with threatening letters and visits yeah. and calls. So you imagine for a second, folks, you're a 75-year-old retiree. Your whole life, your money was with Bernie. You took out $50,000 three, four years ago. 
and it, you're happen to be considered a net gainer, a net uh, yes. pro, net profit. They went back and, and clawed you back, meaning that 75-year-old guy, and you didn't have the money. What did you do? You lost the money that you had with Bernie because it never was real, and the 50 you took out. It was disastrous. It was just, it was the second victimization of these poor people. Yes, and, and he, he threatened liens on their houses. Some of these people had to rent out floors to survive. He went after IRAs, which is the only asset these folks had left, which aren't supposed to be tough. And he played, he played, uh, he played hardball, and he played against the feeder funds. He did a tremendous job there building uh, cases there. But, you know, in places where it was excessive like that, you're right. He's victimizing victims again. It's just absolutely astounding. Okay, so now here we are uh, 13 years, 12 and a half years later from the Ponzi scheme, from when it was discovered. Many, many, many lives have been shattered. Uh, what has Wall Street learned from this? Uh, well, what has Wall Street learned from this? Um, I would ask what the regulatory bodies have learned from this. To my, you know, I have this thing that um, if there isn't some learning backed up by changes in, in regulations or culture, even more important on Wall Street, in my mind, um, that they tend to make the same mistakes uh, over and over. And we're seeing right now what I call Robin Hood and Arkegos, the family um, uh, offices and the hedge funds. You see all these things that are obviously still around and will likely uh, blow up. And, um, you know, I, I, I would say I, I'm more oriented towards what has to change um, than, than, what, than what has changed. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I'm very skeptical of the, of, the, of the whole thing. And I don't think there'll be another Bernie I do think there's a lot of offshore money, though, that's sitting out there that could cause problems and blow up uh, as well. You know, you know, I, I might get you off guard a bit, but why I said what did Wall Street learn? Because uh, I don't expect much from the regulators. I really don't, because we both yes. know we've been in the industry a long while. The regulators aren't, uh, if they were good, they'd be in, in private industry. They wouldn't be <laughs> serving the public, right? And many of them are really good civil servants, but many of them use it as a stepping stone to get into the right. private sector. Okay, I, I don't, I, you know, that, that's fine. I don't besmirch them. I don't think that's a bad thing. God bless you. That's what, you know, it's done in government all the time and I have no problem with. But Wall Street, who should have known better, uh, for example, J.P. Morgan, who was his banker, the so-called uh, um, uh, helpers of Wall Street, anyone getting commission, anyone making money, everyone, it was an open secret that Bernie's doing something crafty here because it was just everyone yeah. who... Look, I, I was back. I, this happened when I was 36, when 2000 or so, 36 or 37 at the time. And I remember reading him say, it's impossible to get these type of returns. You just can't get them. Markets don't go straight up and they don't go flat line forever. And you just can't keep making yeah. money. That's called a treasury bill. And anyone who thinks they're getting that is is really deceiving themselves. Or on the other hand, it's it's fraud. You just can't do right. it. So right off the bat, if I could pick this up in my little hole in the ground, these big, these big banks and, and rest of Wall Street, they should have blown the whistle, but no one did because I think the fees were just too good. And, you know, you talk about J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan had entities within the bank that saw something wasn't right. The, the U.K. actually finally turned them in over there. Uh, and so even within the bank, 
um, it's awful hard for them yeah. to claim that they didn't know. No, I think you had something where they were going to, Bernie was doing something. Someone called it out in New York. office says, no, he brings in too, many, too much fees for us, right? The fees are too great. I think there was something there where one of the J.P. Morgan bankers, and there was a note or an email that said, leave it alone because the fees are good. Is that right? You know, that, was a, that was another completely illegal fraud that Madoff perpetrated, unrelated, with which he ran a check-kiting scheme against the bank that's right, with that's right. one of his big four. And again, apparently some management at J.P. Morgan knew it, but Norm Levy... Um, Norm Levy and um, and Bernie were both. Norm was one of the was the number two big four guy, and um, Bernie, of course, was the Ponzi guy. And they said, "Yeah, don't leave it alone." Yeah. Now, when I talked to J.P. Morgan's folks off the record, they denied that they looked the other way in the check kiting scheme. But believe me, it went on for a long time. They were doing ninety million dollars a day of kiting, yeah. and kiting, for those that don't know, is taking advantage of the float between when a deposit's made and when it's actually credited in your account. Right, right. That couple of days spread, uh, they're making yes. that interest, which is small, but on yeah. millions and millions of dollars, it adds up to a lot yep. of money for uh, doing nothing, really, for really stealing. There's right. another, another story like that at J.P. Morgan where they find out that he has a one-man auditor in yeah. New City in a strip mall. And one of the uh, the future C C chief operating officers says, somebody should call that to find out if it's a car wash or something. And I said to myself, yeah, it was actually a money laundromat. But nobody called no it. They, everybody, there were all these red flags up there. Okay. So as we, as we conclude here, uh, how could the average investor listening to this feel good? How could I feel good that my money's in Schwab? Uh, I, I, I have no faith anymore in SIPC. Uh, <laughs> I'm trusting that Schwab says the numbers that are on my statement are on my statement, same way uh, E-Trade and same way Chase and the same way um, any other brokerage firm. What do I, how do I sleep better at night? <laughs> the only way I think you can sleep better at night is to put your money into a low-cost index fund and watch it grow, and um, and take the nine. As I as I say, take the nine percent and sleep versus uh, any of these other things. And now I, we should say too that um, I don't believe the major Wall Street firms um, are perpetrating any fraud on your statements and things like that. You can trust. Um, even though they don't have independent custodians, you can trust that they're not doing anything. Right. Now, if something happens and SIPC comes in, you know, I can't, I can't vouch for, you know, what SIPC will do to recognize your statements uh, or not. But, um, you know, you got to, the, the Hippocratic Oath needs to imply, apply to the investment community, which is you need to take responsibility to do no harm to your own money, too. Somebody tells you an investment you don't understand, but it's, it's guaranteed, you got to walk away from it. Yeah. If you can't figure it out in two seconds, if somebody is, if your dentist is telling you, you know, walk out of his office, you know, don't do things that don't really make sense. People want to believe this stuff, Charles. Right. They do want to believe right. that, you know, they want to be able to say, I've got this inside thing and it's great right. and it's the best thing since sliced bread. You're taking advantage of people's natural wanting to believe it's too good to be true. Right. And, and one more thing. I think that's well said, Jim. Very well said. I think there's one thing being around this business for a long while is that it's not as complicated as you might think it is. If something's really complicated, hold on to your wallet and run. Because the way to make money is pretty simple, right? Buy stocks that are going up, 
and buy of sound companies and hold them for the long term. Any time you get away from that with guarantees and arcane type of spreads and option strategies and Forex and Bitcoin and all these, watch out uh, because there's no net below that. There, God has not created something where you can make a boatload of money without risking for long periods of time and call it legal. Just does not exist. Does not exist. And the whole point of uh, interest rate that's higher than the T-bill is because there is a risk factor right, in there. Right, right, correct. Right. If T-bills are paying 2% over 10 years per year, uh, which they're not paying 1.5% or so, if someone's offering you 6% or 8% or 10%, you have to ask, why am I getting, why did the heavens part yeah. And I'm the luckiest person out of seven plus billion people that I'm getting eight and a half percent more than a treasury bill by taking no risk. And the answer is, folks, it's too good to be true. It is. There is no suit. There is no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. Sorry to say. And I tell you, I have been stunned, Charles, how few people understand what their money is invested in. I could never find a Madoff victim that could explain to me what the strategy was. I couldn't find Madoff people on the 19th floor who understood what it was. And it's conceptually very simple. It just should have mirrored the market. Right. But, um, which by the way, by definition, can't always go up. People don't understand. And Jim, by definition, can't outperform the market. He was outperforming exactly. the market. Yeah, exactly. So owning the market, you can't outperform it. You know, the average is the average for a reason, because that's what you're getting. You know, you can't get better than the average if you're investing in the average. But so be it. Jim, I want to tell you, um, I, I really enjoyed your book. And the point's where I got really sick about it, and I, and I say this, and I say this in a, in a really friendly and nice way as a compliment, is how, how you look at it and you say, my gosh, so many people are so sucked into this, and it's just a real tragedy. Uh, at the end of the day, Bernie got his due. Uh, uh, his family, unfortunately, who you wrote in the book, uh, you went through, I don't know how many chapters, and you went through each chapter, chapter seven, eight, nine, you laid out a case yeah. like a lawyer. Uh, uh, this is it, this is it. They had no idea what was happening. And folks, read the book. Don't say Jim doesn't know what he's talking about. He's being not. Read the book. He lays it all out there and lets you know what happened, who knew what, and why. I think it's an important thing why they could not have known because Bernie was a genius in that sense. The name of the book is Madoff Talks. Jim, I want to thank you so much. I, I, I really think you did the, um, the investing community a, a real great service by spending, I don't know how many years of your life looking through every nook and cranny. Uh, you didn't do this as a academic research. You did it really as, as a, as a warning shot. Yeah. And I, I want to thank you for saying that, too, because I'm not anti-Wall Street. I'm not trying to destroy Wall Street. I also want to say another thing, Charles. You came from modest uh, circumstances out of Brooklyn, I believe, right? Yep. And you can be a big success on Wall Street being honest and, you know, playing it straight and admitting when the street does things that aren't good. So you're a walking example of the good that does exist on Wall Street. I, I greatly appreciate that. I really do. Everyone, Jim Campbell, go on and get the book, Madoff Speaks. He takes a lot of financial jargon, puts it into really palpable terms. And if you don't like those chapters, skip over them. You don't need them. Because the, I think, you know what, I also like, Jim, before I let you go, and I, I don't want to keep letting you go because I could speak to you for hours. I, I just find this so amazing, is each chapter is really a self-contained book. You know, each one is its own article. You could, you're getting a different glimpse of Bernie and the whole process in every chapter. And I found that I didn't have to know what went on before to read chapter seven. I didn't have to know what went on chapter three. I did read the whole book, but it just really 
how many how many years did this take you? You know, that's a great point, too, by the way. And it's one of the reasons that Netflix is interested in doing a documentary, because the chapters are kind of standalone stories, yeah, yeah. which fits which fits a series uh, like that. And we'll get we'll get much broader exposure to the whole story than than, you know, reading wow. uh, a book. I first uh, talked to Bernie in 2011, 10 years to when the book came out. Wow, wow, wow. There's talk I heard in Hollywood that Brad Pitt is looking to play Jim Campbell. That's just what they say, <laughs> but I see the resemblance. Jim, thanks so much, man. <laughs> God bless you and keep doing some great stuff. All right, I love you. Really, thank you for the interest and all the time you put in this. Great, man, thanks. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.